0: Hey, Casey.
1: Welcome to Sinister, Strange, and Suspicious, a spooky stuff podcast.
0: We are two besties who are obsessed with all things that go bump in the night.
1: We're sassy, sweary, and a whole lot of fun. Give us a listen wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us
0: at ssspodcast.net, on Facebook at Sinister, Strange, and Suspicious Podcast, and at ssspodcast13 on Twitter and Insta.
1: Be sure to leave us a like, subscribe, and a written review, so we can continue bringing you the weird. Let's get this show on the road. Okay, Elon. Mm-hmm. Quick question. Okay. Do you know if Ed Gein ever designed a coat of arms?
0: Jesus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. See, now with more dad jokes. So I am both
0: horrified and super impressed that you found some Ed Gein dad jokes.
1: Well, you know, there are more. Of course there are. The internet is a beautiful thing, Elon. Alright, look it. What is the difference between Edgeen's mom and treasure? What? He didn't dig up any treasure. Golly. <laughs> oh
0: no. That's <laughs> terrible.
1: Why did Edgeen keep his house so hot? Why? So his furniture didn't get goosebumps. Ew! <laughs>
0: oh, that's gross! That one made my stomach hurt a little. <laughs>
1: oh, this one's gonna make you so mad. Oh, God. This is gonna enrage your word thing. <laughs> what did Edgeen make his mattress out of? What? Mammary foam! Oh,
0: my God. Uh, that is horrific.
1: <laughs> oh girl, man, that Ad Gein dude was really weird. He must have had some serious skeletons in his closet. Oh for fuck's sake! You are welcome. You know what? That right there,
0: I, I hid. I I thought that was. Yeah, I thought, I did not expect there to be another
1: one. You're uh, welcome.
0: You're so welcome. That's horrific. I know. Those are great,
1: though. I know, I really felt those
0: like. Were, those were good. The mammary mm-hmm. gland, the, the mm-hmm. mammary foam took me out. I New
1: level unlocked, I feel. Yeah,
0: I feel like you should feel accomplished with these ones. <laughs> so, um,
1: <laughs> what's new?
0: Well, we have got, what, this will be, well, yesterday was Christmas. Mm -hmm. and you know all of the drama and stuff that unfolds with that and you know it is what it is but uh I have just kind of been hanging back and doing fun stuff and what I did find was you know you know how we always we always look for you know weird news articles yeah this that's the fun part and happened to come across this article on uh, united press international so this is uh, on upi.com okay of a dog and goat who were found running loose together in south carolina okay so the cops were they originally were they got the report that there was a dog running loose so they come out and they're like all right we need to get this dog and find its owner but what they, but the animal control deputies were not told by the caller that the dog had a friend with him, a baby goat. What? Yes. So the dog and the goat were spotted running loose in in the Martin Creek Road area, <laughs> South Carolina. And they, the two appeared to be companions for the same home. They stayed with each other. They were looking out for each other, you know, like friends do. Yeah. So they were rounded up and have been taken to the shelter. The sheriff's office now is trying to find their their owner and uh, get them home, which I thought was adorable oh my because gosh,
1: that's so cute and wholesome.
0: You know how we feel about unlikely animal friendships. I love it. And bonus because when we were when I was looking at the site, I happened to notice that the uh, author the author had a name had my you know one of my high school friends' names. So I was like, hmm, and I was like, hmm. He did. He he did work in journalism. I wonder. And I happen to click it, and it is. So Ben Hooper, you you have saved my day as yes. far as the weird news and the fun stuff.
1: Thank you for the wholesomeness that we get to carry into our new week. That's exciting.
0: Yes, and I'm really I'm really happy that I came across this accidentally to go. Hey, that's my boy. So yes. I, that, was, that was a nice little, I don't know.
1: It was a fun little surprise. Yeah,
0: it was cool. Um, so, speaking of South Carolina, mm-hmm. you know, that's connected to our topic today.
1: What is our topic today? Swindlers and slayers. Oh my, step right up, folks. and oh. hear these stories that it, we have. It's right. going to be a good time.
0: It's going to be a good time. Me, so we are exploring serial killers today, and of course, our uh respective favorites.
1: <laughs> this, I have to confess, who I covered is not my favorite, but mm-hmm. he was requested by my boyfriend, who yes. is my favorite. Yep, so so favorite adjacent, yeah. The- <laughs>
0: So, I'm going to cover Lavinia Fisher, who was the... She's widely accepted to be the first American female serial killer.
1: Yeah, she sounds like a bad bitch.
0: I enjoy, I enjoy her story. And actually getting a chance to dig deep in it, like, I learned a whole lot of stuff that I had no idea about. I'm excited for this. Yeah. So... You know that horror plot where uh, the lost travelers go seek help at some rundown motel or gas station? Like House of a Thousand Corpses. Exactly. So they walk in and they find the place like weirdly empty, but the proprietors are helpful and maybe a little weird. Mm-hmm. They usually offer them a meal or a beverage and the weary travelers happily indulge in it. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they fall unconscious and are completely at the mercy of the villain. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, that premise is rooted in a true story. (laughs) Lavinia and John Fisher were a couple living in Charleston, South Carolina in the early 1800s. The Fishers owned the Six Mile Wayfarer House, which was a roadside inn located about six miles outside of Charleston. The inn was a very popular destination for travelers on their way to the city. The Fishers, like I said, were super well-known, and neighbors loved them. They had, like, a fantastic reputation um, in Charleston. And since, since most of the general public was unaware that the couple were more than just simple innkeepers, they were also the heads of an organized crime syndicate. Hell yeah. hmm The Fishers commanded a group of highwaymen, i.e. thieves, who attacked and murdered travelers then stole their valuables. So they're like
1: a power couple.
0: Right? That's what I'm saying. (laughs) So, and I've heard people like, I've heard people describe them as like the 1800s Bonnie and Clyde or whatever. Okay. Right. Right. So over the years, there would be many reports of guests going missing during their stay with the Fishers. Oh no. So... I'm feeling like straight-up Hotel California vibes. Like, guests check out, but they never actually leave. Yikes. Local law enforcement received the reports and attempted to investigate, but due to the couple's reputation in the area, plus the lack of evidence, i.e. they never found any bodies, uh, nothing came of it. The Fishers didn't outright murder every traveler, as that would lead to them losing income and is also way too obvious.
1: Right. I mean, that's smart. Right. Good business sense. You don't want to tip your hand business sense
0: so lavinia had her modus operandi down to a science so let me just set the scene <laughs> you have been traveling on horseback for four days only stopping to eat sleep and feed and water your horse you are hot smelly and fucking exhausted mm-hmm south carolina's muggy weather makes your clothing feel damp which just adds more irritation to every mile you have to travel yuck you finally spot a roadside inn and thinking to yourself you know what i'm almost to charleston i should stop and get a little rest before i head to my final destination sure so you leave your horse in the small stable next to the inn and as you approach the cozy looking building a smiling woman opens the door and greets you She is kind and lovely, ushering you into the sitting room. Once you are comfortable, she takes a great interest in your life, asking questions about your family, your hometown, what brings you to Charleston. You know, like polite Mm -hmm. conversation, getting to know someone. And at this point in the conversation, unbeknownst to you, that sweet woman is gathering information and weighing whether you're worth her efforts. She offers you tea, which of course you graciously accept. And as you sip the weirdly flowery smelling tea you feel your limbs growing heavier and heavier oh no and suddenly notice just how comfortable this overstuffed armchair is you feel as if you can almost sink into it don't do it before you know it the woman has taken your hand in hers leading you down a hallway cooing oh my you are well and truly exhausted let's get you to bed so you'll feel refreshed for business tomorrow She guides you into the adjacent room and helps you into the softest bed you have ever felt. Before you know it, you're unconscious. The last thing you see is the sly, sickening smirk of the woman as she leaves the room, locking the door behind her. For those unlucky victims that Lavinia felt it would be worthwhile to rob, she offered tea containing a sedative poison, escorted them to their room, and tucked them in for the night
1: so do you want to hear something that i learned recently absolutely so i've been listening to this weird podcast mm-hmm. um that's done by um a nurse who is a former fbi profiler Ooh, cool and she on her podcast was describing about how um poisoners are actually more commonly men than women statistically and i mm-hmm. did not know that interesting
0: yeah I wonder why. I don't... Maybe... Well, I I mean, we know, like, back in the old days, where women tended to be poisoners because they had access to everybody's food. Mm -hmm. But now that we've moved beyond that...
1: Yeah.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. I want to dig into that
1: more. I know. It was... Like, (laughs) there was not a ton of information surrounding the statistic. Right. But I was just like, that's very interesting because I always assumed that it was women.
0: Yeah. It used to be. It's just not, not anymore.
1: Perhaps fodder for a future episode. Heck yeah.
0: So... Lavinia has got them all tucked in for the night and you know they're completely at her mercy like you are fucked basically once the victims were in bed they were doomed the fishers had custom built the guest room to like they basically added this super complicated lever and pulley system which would cause the bed to fall through the floor suddenly dropping that drugged guest into a hidden room below, which was outfitted with a spiked floor. Whoa. So think of like, you know, like a tiger trap in the jungle, like with the, it's that, the hole in the ground with the spikes in the bottom. Basically that. Whoa. But underneath their house. So once the guests dropped onto the spikes, if they managed to still draw breath, then John Fisher would quickly dispatch them by slitting their throats. According to the legend, the Fishers killed hundreds of people in this way. Now, we know that the Fishers robbed and killed travelers, but there are different versions of the crimes and their methodology. The other widely accepted version completely does away with the whole bed lever thing, resulting in Lavinia providing the poison tea, and then the guests fall asleep. They still get, you know, they still get taken to the room, put in Mm -hmm. bed. But once they were unconscious, John Fisher would enter the room and stab them to death.
1: Hmm.
0: He would then dispose of the body and the couple could rifle through their belongings at their leisure. All right. So now we get to the part that we know happened because we have news articles from the Charleston Post and the Charleston's Courier that corroborated most of this. Now, of course, you know, journalism back then had, they let them have a lot of artistic
1: license. Lots of inflammation can be
0: seen. Exactly. So I did my best to pull the information that i saw on multiple articles rather than one gotcha so this is a this is an amalgamation of what happened sure. according to the newspaper <laughs> so as i mentioned before there wasn't much evidence to be found in the investigations mounted by local law enforcement so the case came to a screeching halt there was never any proof of the gang's theft activity to be found either So, in what will come as no surprise, a vigilante posse was formed to get to the bottom of what exactly was happening at the Six Mile Wayfarer house in February of 1819. Yeah. The vigilantes combed the area around the inn, including the woods. They found nothing, but decided to leave one member of the group behind to stand watch. His name was David Ross. In the early morning hours... David was attacked by a couple of men and dragged to the gang's headquarters. Oh, no. He was terrified, completely surrounded by a large group of the most disagreeable malcontents you can imagine. As he looked around in fear, his eyes landed upon a familiar face. It was Lavinia. He begged her for help as he knew her to be a kind and generous woman. When Lavinia realized he recognized her, she suddenly leapt on this helpless man, choking him out. Oh, no. And he fought back. David David and Lavinia were tussling. Suddenly, she forces his head through a window, shattering the glass. Dang, girl. Right. David fought really hard, but was able to escape the gang's headquarters and ran straight to the sheriff. Yikes. So, this was early morning of that day, right? Sure. While David had gone for help. and So, he's in Charleston, you know, trying to let the sheriff know what's going on and yeah. freaking out. So while he's there, a man named John Peoples arrived at the inn. So John Peoples had come from Georgia, was on his way to Charleston for a business deal. Lavinia quickly flipped into sweet innkeeper mode and greeted him warmly. John was tired from his trip and he really wanted to rest. So he asked Lavinia if they had any vacancies. Now, since she has no idea what happened to David, just knows that he got away and she was trying her best to keep her composure, so she figured she could stall him and keep him in the the sitting room while the gang figured things out and how to handle what was coming. She told John that the inn had no vacancies, but he was more than welcome to come inside for a rest and the lovely tea blend that she created from her garden. Oh, no. He hated tea, but not wanting to be rude, John accepted the cup. In a move that most definitely saved his life, he pretended to drink the tea and poured it out while Lavinia was distracted. Smart dude. Yes. She questioned John for hours, attempting to figure out if he was worth, you know, being her next victim. She decided that he was and left the room briefly. Now, while she was gone, John heard other people moving around in the house. So um, when Lavinia returned, he asked her... um, you know, where their other where their other board are staying. She doesn't know sure. we're alone. What do you mean?
1: Mm, that sucks.
0: Mm-hmm. So when she came back to the room, she told John that a room had suddenly become available out of nowhere. Convenient. Right? But John's exhausted and he's just like, Fuck it. He decides to head to the room. But as he is getting comfortable there, he just something just doesn't feel right in his gut. He was thinking about his conversation with the proprietress and became uncomfortable with the amount of information he had shared with her. She seemed to find it thrilling during the conversation, hungrily seeking details about his job and life as a single man. Mm. He knew he heard other people moving around in the house, but she kept saying they were alone. Something was
1: very wrong. This is why you always listen to your gut. That's it. Trust your gut, man.
0: It will save your ass nine times out of ten. So John was worried about potentially being robbed, understandably. That's fair. So instead of sleeping on the bed, he slept in a chair next to the door. Hours later, John Peoples was awoken by the sound of the lever and pulley mechanism collapsing the bed into the floor. Awkward. Thinking quickly, he jumped out of the window and rode to Charleston to alert the authorities. The sheriff's investigative team had gone from no leads to two eyewitnesses in 24 hours. Oh my gosh, that is some <laughs> dumb luck. Right? Right? So the two witnesses, David Ross and John Peoples, were able to identify their assailants by name, which led to the police being dispatched to the inn immediately. They found both Lavinia and John Fisher, as well as two members of the gang, despite their location being hidden by the dense forest. And attempting to protect his wife, John Fisher immediately surrendered on behalf of the group to avoid a gunfight. And then during their interrogation, he once again attempted to pull the officer's focus from Lavinia's role by giving up the identities and locations of, like, everybody else in the gang. Like, he just straight snitched. Way to throw him under the bus. Seriously. But there were no bodies to connect the Fishers to the disappearances and murders. So they were charged with highway robbery, which was a capital offense of the same magnitude and had the same sentence. So I guess it really doesn't matter. All right. Despite her husband's efforts, Lavinia was arrested and held at the Charleston City Jail. The two were incarcerated for a year before their arraignment, and during that time the couple attempted to escape by climbing down a rope made of bed sheets to the ground below. Oh
1: my gosh, that is so like wily coyote of them.
0: Right. So John went first, but as he was as he was climbing down, the sheets began to tear and <laughs> gave way. <laughs> Snapped, dropped into the ground. John landed really hard outside the jail, like had the wind knocked out of him, but he was not willing to leave his wife. So he did not run off. Um, He actually stayed next to the jail (laughs) and was taken back into custody. Oh my word. With a tighter security, much tighter security protocols, basically. That is
1: an epic fail.
0: Right? I'm sorry. I, I, I love my spouse, but if... I'm getting the fuck up out of here. Hell oh, yeah. John Lavinia appeared before the court January 17th, 1820, and pled not guilty. In one last attempt to avoid the noose, Lavinia came up with an idea. At the time in South Carolina, it was illegal to execute a married woman. She smugly sat on the stand, speaking directly to the judge, and mentioned the law specifically. Um, she was... She came across as very smug, the way it was written in the yeah. <laughs> in the paper and I love that. The judge nodded and agreed that it was true. You cannot execute a married woman. So, in order to get around that, they're just going to execute John first. Once John was pronounced dead, Lavinia was no longer a married woman. She was, she then became a widow and could um, be executed. Oh, no.
1: loopholes.
0: Yep. The Fishers were convicted of highway robbery and scheduled for execution by hanging on February 4th, 1820. The governor of South Carolina, John Geddes, received tons of letters, not just from the Fishers themselves, but from other people working on their behalf, like local clergy, some of the neighbors. The petitioners sought a period of respite from the couple's execution date that would allow them to, like, get their shit sorted out and get them ready to meet their maker, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. The governor granted the respite and changed the execution date to February 18th, 1820. With the additional 2 weeks granted, Lavinia thought she would surely be able to secure a pardon. Cuz you know, he the governor was the governor was going to be lenient. He had to be. Sure. She was a lady. Sure. <laughs> sure. She was a beautiful, well-off and well-connected woman. There's no way they would find her guilty. There's oh, no, no way the governor is going to execute a beautiful woman. All she had to do was shed some tears, declare her innocence, and she would walk free.
1: Sure, maybe faint for good measure. Yeah,
0: wishful thinking. I I, I feel it. In their period of respite, a Baptist minister arrived who was intent on saving their souls. He offered to help them, which, of course, John Fisher was happy to accept because he knew he was fucked either way. Mm -hmm. He appreciated the prayers and the divine intercession he believed Reverend Furman to be capable of. Lavinia, though? no Lavinia. (laughs) Not so much. She was so sure that she would be declared innocent that she had no interest in prayers or atoning for her sins. She simply didn't believe that the governor would hang a woman. It was just unheard of. Denial is a powerful drug. It really is. So on a fateful day, a carriage waited outside the jail to transport the Fishers to the gallows. The couple linked their arms and walked outside. A crowd had begun to gather at the gallows behind the jail to watch the hanging. And the Fishers' case had been like massive news on its own like huge national news but then you add in the fact that Lavinia was the first woman sentenced to hang in South Carolina so you can see why this was like a big fucking deal yeah as the couple approached the gallows the crowd began to murmur Lavinia had arrived in a full-on wedding dress veil and all
1: oh my word you gotta love the theatrics right
0: She figured if she doubled down on the whole, you can't hang a married woman bit, things would end differently. Because, like, okay, I'm dressed as a bride. That's going to look so bad. Right. You know what I mean? Optics are important. Right? And if that didn't work, she was hoping that she could seduce a man from the crowd into marrying her. (laughs) I mean, the priest is right there. I can kind of see the logic. That's hilarious. For convenience's sake, you know? That's hilarious. As the judge ordered, John Fisher was the first to reach the scaffold. He walked slowly and solemnly. Once there, Reverend Furman read a letter that John had written to the crowd. The letter was a last-minute plea for clemency, and in it, John said that since he had become a Christian in jail, he could not be executed by reason of a lie held against his account. Essentially, I'm a Christian man now, and I should not be executed for somebody else's lies about what I did. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. He insisted on his innocence and asked for mercy on the governing officials who had wronged him. The reverend finished the letter and John began begging and pleading with the 2,000 person crowd of spectators. In a sudden contradiction to his letter and his impassioned plea, he began asking for their forgiveness for his crimes. Pick one, bro. Once he had spoken his piece, the 29-year-old man was hanged. Next, it was Lavinia's turn. Good old Lavinia. She did not go quietly or with dignity at all. Nope. Lavinia put up a hell of a fight. She refused to walk to the gallows. Instead, she had to be carried slash dragged, kicking and screaming.
1: I mean, go big or go home. Honestly,
0: if if I know I'm about to be executed, I'm going to have no dignity. Fuck that. Hell yeah,
1: I'm not going to make your job easy for you. You're earning that money. Right.
0: So as they're dragging her, she just unleashes her fury on the crowd, especially these like really wealthy and well-connected socialites, i.e. her fucking friends, right? She blamed them for the conviction for some reason. So Reverend Furman, who's still standing at the gallows, began to pray and ask for mercy on Lavinia's soul while the executioners placed the noose around her neck and began to tighten it. Lavinia screamed out, cease, I will have none of it but if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me, I'll carry it. Ooh, girl. And with that, 28-year-old Lavinia Fisher was hanged for her crimes. Once their deaths were confirmed by the staff doctor, the Fisher's bodies were buried in a potter's field near the Charleston City Jail. After the investigation and full sweep of the property for human remains, the six-mile wayfarer house and the other buildings belonging to the Fishers were burned to the ground. Nothing remained of the Hotel of Horrors but ashes wow yeah that there was a lot more to this than i knew from hearing this story over the years
1: there are some definite parallels Mm Mhm. i get it
0: so i i just that one i was really surprised by how much additional stuff happened that was not reported like that isn't part of the legend as it's been passed down and I feel that's like they're missing an opportunity for something super interesting.
1: Wow. So, yeah, I uh, I chose Ed Gein. Of course. <clears throat> In the end, there's some parallels here, so that's interesting. I like it. That we get to explore. Mm-hmm. But um, So, Edward Theodore Gein was the second son who was born to George Philip Gein and Augusta Wilhelmine Gein. Oh wow. Wilhelmine Gein. Oh I wouldn't know. That's like a like a stage name. Like Yeah.
0: What was and there was a tennis there was a tennis person whose name was kind of Ryan-y like that. I'll think of it later. I can't think of it right now. I don't know,
1: but I dig it.
0: Oh, Yvonne Goulagon. That's that's oh no my wise. gosh. That's amazing. That's she was a uh, she's like an Olympic tennis player in the seventies or eighties or something. I love
1: it. So, Augusta, whom Ed lovingly referred to as Mother, was born on July 21st, 1878 in La
0: Crosse, Wisconsin. Oh, she was a Leo?
1: Hmm? Interesting. Yeah. So, her parents were Amalia and Frederick Lurkey. Amalia and Frederick were German immigrants from Prussia who moved to the U.S. during the old Lutheran exodus. Okay. So history side note King Frederick William III of Prussia forced all Lutheran and Reformed churches to merge into one united front Mm -hmm. called the Prussian Union of Churches. This was a very difficult time for the Orthodox Lutheran orthodox lutherans who kind of found themselves being constantly persecuted so a lot of them fled en masse to the u.s and other places okay um there was a large group of them who landed in wisconsin that kind of spread out a little bit and formed three different groups or synods wow so you have the evangelical lutheran church in america right you have the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Okay. And then you have the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. Augusta's family was a part of the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I have some friends who have practiced Lutheran all their lives, and I kind of asked for some clarification on this. And they described this group to me as the OG of the old school. <laughs> I like it. Um, folks within this particular group have to be examined and found self-righteous by the congregation to even participate in church. Oh,
0: hell. They
1: are a very members-only mindset. Oh, my God. They believe that they are the only denomination who gets it right. Basically, everyone else is wrong that just sounds like witnesses. Yeah. <laughs> but worse like oh, right. this girl yeah I, I hear it so Augusta this is the church that Augusta was kind of raised in okay um, Augusta was one of eight children and her parents raised her to believe that every single thought and deed is corrupted by sin and all of humanity deserves eternal damnation
0: Jesus uh huh
1: So Augusta grows up in this faith and she becomes a very God-fearing woman who hated all men and believed that sex was evil and that women were the instruments of the devil. Oh, yeah. I can think of a handful of religions that have. So there's a lot to unpack here with Augusta and her religious leanings. (laughs) So when she was 22, Augusta married Philip Gein, um, they got married on December 11th of 1900. Mm-hmm. Philip was the son of German immigrants. And um, I heard on another podcast that he was orphaned early in life when a flash flood came and took all of his family except for him. Oh, God. So he grew up in orphanages and kind of had a lot of childhood trauma that was likely unresolved because of the times. Well, sure. And so um Philip ended up growing up to be a major alcoholic who was mean as hell and constantly drank to excess. Mm. Um he was unable to hold down a job for very long and him and Augusta like they fought constantly like cats and dogs. Like they pretty much hated each other. Um Augusta was definitely not shy about sharing the contempt that she felt for her husband, and you could often hear her praying out loud for God to take him. Holy shit. Like she legit prayed for her man to straight up die. Oh, that's awful. For decades.
0: Damn.
1: Yes. Um obviously because of her religious beliefs, she couldn't divorce him because right. you know, in God's eyes that would be a huge failure. Yeah. So she stuck it out and kind of just became, like, this angry matriarch of their little Mm -hmm. family. Um, They ran a little store, and she kind of took over operations of this store because all her husband would do is just kind of drink the profits. Right. So, um, yeah. So, like I said, she hated Matt. Like, a lot, a lot. And she was deeply disappointed that Ed was not a girl. And for the few, first few years of his life, she actually would dress him like a girl mm-hmm. and treat him like he was a girl. And kind of just told everybody that she wanted to raise him to be different from every other man. Um, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Like,
0: I get it. Because mm. we that's kind of how we set out t- how we how we're raising our signs
1: right but not not like this no that's the, fucked. just wait
0: we just want them to be compassionate humans right <laughs>
1: like well augusta was very strict mm-hmm. and she rarely showed her bo- either of her boys affection Aww. um she was actually certain that they were bound to be failures just like their dad So because of this, she frequently was assaulting them by screaming Bible quotes at them. And she would constantly tell them that booze and every woman except for her were the epitome of wickedness. Um, I read a retelling of an incident where Augusta actually caught Ed masturbating in the bathtub when he was a young boy. And instead of being like, oh, maybe do that in private or whatever, she actually just grabbed his dick and squeezed it super hard and screamed at him about how it was the curse of men. Oh, wow. I'm sure that it wasn't traumatic at all for Oh, him.
0: wow.
1: Yes. So um, around the time Ed was eight, Augusta had kind of had her fill of the city life, mm-hmm. and she was very petrified that this small town of Plainfield was going to corrupt her babies. Yeah, And she, I think, was kind of sick of her husband's booze and ways. So she sells the grocery store for a profit, and the Geens move to a farm that kind of sat on 195 acres. Damn! And the nearest neighbor was over a mile away. And she had selected this location in an effort to keep those sinners at bay. (laughs) Um... Shortly after they moved to the farm, Ed disobeyed his mom's orders to stay inside the house one day while the adults were attending to the slaughtering of the pigs. He snuck down to the shed where they would be doing the deed and kind of peeked in just as his mom was disemboweling a hog. Oh. Upon seeing this, Ed actually experienced his first ejaculation And um, it kind of seemed like it was a formative experience for him. Yep. In, like, a really gross way. No kidding. Um, Ed and his brother Henry were only allowed to leave their farm for school. And when they tried to make friends at school, they ended up facing Augusta's wrath. She made sure that a very young Ed believed that these people were outsiders and that each and every one of them were sinners and they were from bad families And befriending them would only lead Ed down a slippery slope of eternal damnation and being a loser, just like his dad. Augusta would drill this into their heads every day that in order to be loyal to Augusta, Mm -hmm. they would need to remain virgins because sex would lead to an eternity in hell.
0: Ooh. That's a lot to unpack. If you could, I mean, there are so many complexes that that yeah good goodness i just
1: there's more oh I know she was quite piece of work yeah so um it is actually said that ed frequently questioned his masculinity throughout his life um you know which makes sense because of how augusta tried raising him as a girl at first and i'm sure like the messages that she sent him about gender and his identity were very confusing Mm -hmm. um she like i said always swore he would not be like other men and really drove it home that men sucked (laughs) they were the weaker of the sexes and they were less than wow um ed would talk about sometimes fantasizing becoming a powerful woman just like his mother around 1937 ed was 31 years old and his father george started to experience failing health his condition got so bad that he was completely dependent on those that he used to terrorize for his care in 1940 Augustus' prayers were finally answered when george gene died from congestive heart failure at the age of 66. Wow. After George's death, Ed and Henry started doing a lot of odd jobs around town for neighbors to kind of help keep things afloat Mm -hmm. financially. Both boys worked as handyman. And fun fact, Ed frequently babysat for people in town. He told people that he enjoyed being around children because they were easier for him to relate to. Oh, that's icky. Mm -hmm. That... I don't like that at all. Oh. Neighbors would describe Ed as odd but polite and dependable, according to the New Zealand Herald. So, naturally, Ed had a healthy fear of women thanks to his mother, (coughs) but not Henry. Henry actually met and was bewitched by a divorced mother of two. (laughs) A harlot, obviously. Of course. Loose woman. Henry was smitten with the devil pussy and started... (laughs) And he started to realize that maybe Mother was batshit crazy.
0: Devil vagina.
1: Henry started confiding in Ed about his doubts of Mother. He even would criticize her sometimes. Ed was very put off by this. Mother was his be-all and end-all, which is something that Henry was worried about. He kind of felt like Ed's attachment to mother was very unhealthy. So, four years after George's death, Henry would die a mysterious death under questionable circumstances. On May 16th, 1944, Henry and Ed set a fire on their property to burn away some overgrowth of vegetation. It got out of control and somehow during the time that they were fighting it, Ed and Henry became separated. After things calmed down, Ed could not find Henry so he went to the police station and claimed that he had lost Henry in the fire. Weirdly enough though, when police showed up, Ed was able to take them right to Henry's lifeless body. Henry was found pretty far away from the path of fire and there were no burns to speak of on his body. However, his head was severely bruised. People were not as naturally suspicious back then as they are now, so Henry's death was actually ruled an accidental asphyxiation, directly resulting from smoke inhalation, but there was no actual autopsy performed on his body. So with Henry dead and buried in the local cemetery, Ed now had mother to himself. Mm -mm. After Henry's death, Ed didn't have much of a social life, so he threw himself into reading and exploring new things that way. Augusta became worried about this, and this I kind of agree with her on. Um, Ed had started researching topics of head shrinking, grave robbing, human anatomy, and he actually really enjoyed reading about the things that Nazis did to their prisoners. Oh, hell. Yeah. Nope. So about a year and a half later, after a severe decline in her health and several strokes, Augusta Gein died at 67, leaving Ed alone in the world. He promptly boarded up her bedroom and sitting rooms. He, he'd never lived before. So I imagine it was kind of like a liberating and overwhelming experience. Now, around this time, Ed quit bathing and wasn't the best at keeping up on his obligations with the farm. So neighbors kind of reported that he started smelling and kind of looking more disheveled. And like over the course of the next 18 months, he was just very secluded and um, he would dotingly visit his mother's grave over this time. And he told investigators at his arrest that he felt extreme loneliness and had started experiencing strange visions. So um, gradually, these trips that he would take to visit Mother turned sinister. Some sources claim that the first person that he dug up was actually Mother herself. That version of events tells that he removed her head and mm. took it home to shrink, just like he had read about.
0: Oh my
1: god. Uh-huh. Soon after, he began reading obituaries of women who were similar in age and features to his mother and would dig them up oh. to kind of source the materials for a woman suit that he was creating out of human flesh.
0: Not sourcing materials. There... <laughs>
1: You can't source that ethically. No, you cannot. (laughs) So he kind of unethically sourced parts from these corpses. Mm -hmm. He made this getup to assist in helping him transform into a woman. He would later admit to wearing the skin suit, leggings, panties with a severed vulva, and a vest with attached breasts to dance in the moonlight. Oh, man. Fun fact, during Ed's nighttime romps he visited a total of 40 cemeteries each time he was in search of freshly buried mostly middle-aged women who looked like mother in her prime um he claimed that he never had sex with any of these corpses because they smelled too bad but he masturbated on the graves at times thusly making him a necrophile oh my god uh which i know is your favorite Yep, yeah, totally my favorite. So, while there is zero proof that actually links Gein to any of these, there was an uptick in missing persons cases around this time. And there are a couple that I thought I should specifically tell you about. Mm -hmm. In 1947, an eight-year-old girl named Georgia Weckler disappeared without a trace. There was minimal evidence left behind, like literally only a set of tire tracks. There, police never had an official suspect or really an official narrative of what happened. Mm -hmm. But some believe that this could have been Ed's first kill. The tracks that were left behind, which is the only piece of physical evidence, were from a Ford. And it just so happens that Ed happened to drive a Ford with very similar tires. Like, I'm sure half of this town did, but it's just kind of like, huh, you know. Hmm. Makes you go, I wonder. um, and then in 1953, actually in La Crosse, Wisconsin, a girl named Evelyn Hartley was abducted from a home she was babysitting at. Mm-hmm. There were signs of a struggle in the home, and one of the windows had pry marks on the outside. Weirdly enough, Ed happened to be visiting a relative in La Crosse at the time. This relative lived a few blocks from the crime scene, and um, Ed was like there at that time Mm-mm. so weird coincidence come on but he always denied involvement with either of these cases so you decide <laughs> so mother's dead and ed's living home alone you know um kind of just living a sad life like if neighbors weren't feeding him meals he just literally existed on pork and beans yeah I know, it's kind of gross. But he didn't know how to fend for himself. Right. And that's just really kind of sad. It's like that learned helplessness we talked about. exactly. Mm -hmm. So when he got bored and lonely enough, he would on occasion make his way to the local bar where patrons would sneak liquor into his beer to get him super drunk so that they could make him do dumb things and make fun of him. Oh, that's
0: terrible.
1: Yeah, it's kind of sad. It is. When he was there, Ed started to develop a fixation on the bar's owner, Mary Hogan. Mary was 54, and everything that Mother had warned Ed about. Oh, here we go. She was known as Bloody Mary because she was crude as hail. (laughs) One night in December of 54, Mary appeared... one night in December of 1954, Mary disappeared from her bar. The only clues to her disappearance that were left behind were a pool of blood and one bullet casing that was found on the bar floor. The day following the disappearance, the town was abuzz with theories about Mary's disappearance. Multiple people saw and spoke with Ed that day, and he told each and every one of them, yeah, she's up at my house right now. They all thought that he was joking because mild mannered, simple, world's best babysitter Ed could not possibly be the culprit, right? Right? Uh Except he totally was. (laughs) Actually, Mary's head was in a paper bag inside of his house at that very moment. Oh my God. Yeah. In his confession, Ed would tell police that he was at the bar around closing time the night in question. He closed the blinds, pulled out his gun, and shot her in the forehead. Then he tossed her in the back of his pickup truck and went home to do his thing. On November fifteenth, 1957, Ed went into Warden's Hardware Store to get some antifreeze. Weirdly, the shop didn't open like it was supposed to the next day. So the sheriff, who was also the son of the proprietor, he went to check on his mom. hmm While he was there, he found blood on the floor and a rifle out of place on the display rack. There was also a receipt. The last sale of the day before was Ed Gein buying antifreeze.
0: Oh, shit.
1: So later that evening, the sheriff and a deputy went to Ed's home to ask Ed some questions. He was not home, and it was kind of getting late in the day. And mind you, like... Ed's house was, like, primitive as fuck. There was no electricity. Oh. Like, no running water, no none of that stuff. Okay, so, so no comfort. <laughs> so the sheriff was like, okay, we gotta go get, like, flashlights or whatever and come back. hmm So they go do that. They come back and decide to take a look around. They entered the house through the shed where they were met with Bernice Warden's headless corpse. Oh, shit. She was hung upside down by the ankles and strung up, like, literally like a deer. Field, oh. field dressed, cuts, <gasps> cut the whole way up, oh, guts no. removed. Super disgusting. Oh, um, my gosh. It was the second day of hunting season after all. Oh, my God. <laughs> Um, amazingly, they did not run out screaming and they went further into the house of horrors, finding human skulls on bedposts, a box of random organs, Mm-mm. furniture pieces made out of the skin and bones of actual people, several face masks, as in like real faces. Oh, no, that were like severed from their person. Oh, my god, and preserved. Like, uh-uh. yeah, uh-uh. yuck. And then they also found the beautiful skin suit that I described earlier
0: oh that 's horrible
1: um Ed was promptly taken into custody at first. he was super quiet, but the investigators kind of bribed him with some good food, so they gave him that's it? the famous thing is they gave him a cup of coffee. And a piece of apple pie with melted cheddar cheese.
0: Oh, that's right. I and, remember that.
1: And they say that, like, because all he ate was fucking beans and weenies, that, like, giving him this good food was enough to just make him spill his guts. Holy
0: like, cow.
1: So um, he kind of went into this confession where he tells them that, yes, in fact, Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden were killed by him. He told police about how he visited all the cemeteries in a daze and enjoyed dancing in his woman's suit at them. <laughs> he described using castor oil to preserve face masks and other skin items.
0: I'm just tickled at face masks. Like that... Right. Like that has like a completely really different connotation for us now. And I'm I don't I'm I I can't. This so, is so funny.
1: My favorite thing in this whole disgusting story is the fact that people used to say that his house was haunted mm-hmm. and that on full moon nights a woman ghost would dance in his yard. Ha <laughs> Guess what? Seven is skin suit <laughs> One ghost. <laughs> I love that. Okay. So yeah, um, when examined by a psychologist and a psychiatrist um he was classified as a sexual psychopath and schizophrenic they also noted an abnormally amplified attachment to his mother as a contributing yeah. thing to this um during a week-long search of ed's property investigators found a fuck ton of disgusting stuff the highlights include bones from unknown males a gold to- a gold tooth <clears throat> and the sexual organs of several young girls. Several. Several young girls. Jesus. In 1958, Ed was actually declared legally insane and sent to the Wisconsin Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, which is located in Wappen, Wisconsin. Hmm. Another fun fact, this was the farthest away from home that Ed would ever go. Yeah, that's sick. Wow. That, yeah, that, that just... Oh. So, right before the home and all of its contents were set to be auctioned off, it actually was burned down. Rumors kind of indicate that perhaps it was done intentionally to prevent the space from becoming a spectacle. Right, which you you know it would have. Of course, it would have. Um, So, Gein would spend 10 years in the mental institution before he would be declared fit for trial when he was in the asylum he was known as pretty well behaved but delusional at times mm-hmm. in 1968 he was finally considered well enough to take part in legal proceedings and he ended up standing trial for the murder of Bernice Warden okay he ended up being declared not guilty by reason of insanity though and was sent back to the asylum to live out his days wow um, now, over the years, on a few different occasions, Ed would attempt to request release due to a sudden improvement in his mental competence. Those <clears throat> petitions were all denied, and he ended up being sent to Mendota Mental Health Institute in Madison, Wisconsin, um, where he would die on July 26th of 1940. He died on my fucking birthday? <laughs> yes. At the age of 77.
0: Holy shit. Yes. Oh, that's delightful. You
1: know. Oh, I did not know.
0: That's I did not know that. Another movie that died. That's a, hilarious. Another
1: weird coincidence is his grandmother. Her name was Lila.
0: Holy shit! I know. I don't like having. I don't like having things in common with him. It's so I weird. Really don't. Not a fan.
1: So like, it's just funny, like there were things that we all thought we knew right and then there was
0: more yeah I think that's kind of that's the fun part with any of the the serial killer episodes or like the the known cases because there's Mm -hmm. you know everybody has the the narrative idea that they remember and then when we actually get into it then we're like holy shit all this was happening like like um, the Lorena Bobbitt. When yeah. We covered when we covered that.
1: Yeah. Like had no idea that she was super abused. Yeah, and there was so way hard. more to this. Yeah. Yep. Same
0: with Monica Lewinsky.
1: But yes, the you know, yes.
0: the the narrative of these crimes, it's. I feel like it gets diluted after a while. Mm-hmm. Yep. So then we're like, oh yeah, we know who that is. Uh, you know, this person is a serial killer. He dismembered bodies. You know, whatever. But Norman then we get, Bates,
1: blah blah blah. Yeah.
0: yeah. But now we're getting into the circumstances that led for him to develop these issues.
1: Mm-hmm. That's and I mean, crazy. like, I knew mom and dad were both assholes. But yeah. Like, I didn't know the extent, like how fanatical was his mom. Like, you know, like it's.
0: That's terrifying. Like, yeah. I had no idea that she was that fucked up, basically. I know, it's crazy. But, I mean, now we can kind of see why it resulted in the the person it resulted in. It's true. That's crazy as, crazy as hell. I'm, I'm for real blown away.
1: Me too.
0: Oh. Wow. All right. All right. Well, that was Swindlers and Slayers. I think this was a fun one. This was a fun one. I like any of the ones where we cover things and find new stuff
1: so when we come back i'll be 40 Mm -hmm. and it'll be a new year yeah so um you know my dad was killed by a drunk driver when i was eight so i implore you guys to please enjoy yourselves responsibly have a super awesome new year celebration Mm -hmm. and we will be back soon
0: yep Stay
1: safe, (laughs) y'all. Bye.
0: Bye.